Well, I hope that you have never felt the subjective unsettledness of the terror of being hunted. Not just by a figment of your imagination, but in reality, knowing somebody's after you and they're not just wanting to meet you outside after school, but in the most significant way, they're ready to snuff out your life. Not only do I hope you've never felt the terror of being hunted by one, but by an entire regime of leaders within a city. Can you imagine what it might do to the waking psyche, not to mention the loss of sleep? Can you just for a moment try to engage with what it might feel like to have a constant frazzledness or a nervous angst or a worried subconscious or a quickened temper or a short fuse or an edgy tone or a snappy impatience if you and all the people in the city of Memphis knew that you lived under a legitimate conscious threat of death not from one murderous man but from an entire murderous mob and all of those city's leaders then could you imagine yourself beneath such a verifiably legitimate death threat walking publicly right through the middle of that mob unarmed? And not only exteriorly unarmed, but interior having a spirit that is completely at ease, undisturbed, unfazed, unrattled, unfettered, unfrenzied, unencumbered. Such was the life of our Lord. Though being hunted and having, as was mentioned at the beginning of the service, a warrant out not only for his arrest, but for his arrest for the purpose of death, the Lord Jesus knew and believed the indestructible purposes and power of God and therefore lived at constant peace. Jesus was a marked man. There was a bounty on his head. He and most of the city of Jerusalem knew that the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the officers intended, as our text will say, to kill him. Yet instead of living a triggered life, instead of being on edge, instead of going into hiding, let me just say, that's how I would be. The Lord of glory instead marched his mighty self alone, by himself, no entourage, into the middle of that very city in its most jam-packed, shoulder-to-shoulder, a total flood of people with full trust in the sovereign prerogative of his father, and he commenced not only to show up, but to publicly, boldly, to quote our sermon text, cry out in the temple during the crowded feast, unabashedly declaring his identity 
as the eternal son of God, which is the reason John Bob tells us they wanted to kill him, and that he is the only savior of all peoples in the entire world, and that all who do not embrace him will in fact perish under the Father's wrath forever. From whence did Jesus derive such supernatural courage and confidence? And is that available to us? The explicit answer in our text from whence Jesus derived his courage and found his confidence is given in an explicit statement. He knew his hour had not yet come. Until then, the Lord Jesus was unkillable, and so are you. Our sermon text is John chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. John 7, 25, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Hear the word of the only God that exists. So some of the people of, Jer of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Verse 30, so they were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement, he said, you will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Oh, we need God's help. So let's ask the God who promised to give it to any who come through Christ. Father, would you please show us now the life-giving glory and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? And would you not just show us that out there, but form his life in us by faith? I ask that your spirit would so minister through your word in this sermon that you would cause us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of God, and that by believing upon him, we would have life in his name. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 
You may have noticed that John gives us this passage all in one setting. If it were a play, the whole act would be in one place. It would be one act with several scenes, and there are six scenes in the one act, but the whole thing takes place in the temple in Jerusalem. Each portion of the text, the six parts, the six scenes, if you will, of that one act are drawn out by the spokesperson. So in verse 25, the people of Jerusalem are speaking. In verse 28, Jesus gives a public cry. In, in verse 30, maybe it would help you to see it, the, the, the author, John the Apostle, gives an inspired explanation of what's happening in this moment. Fourth, in verse 32, the Pharisees and chief priests react to that moment. In verse 33, Jesus utters a damning declaration over both the religious leaders and the surrounding crowd. And finally, in verse 35, the confounded crowd is responding to what Jesus said about his identity and his gospel accomplishments. So the beginning of chapter seven tells us this whole episode is happening at the temple in Jerusalem during the feast of the Jews, the feast of tabernacles. I thought that it might help you. It's not customary for us, but this seems like a, a good opportunity. I thought that it might help you to see about a minute and a half video rendering of what the temple looked like during the life and ministry of Jesus. And for what it's worth, Lean Rittmeyer, who's the leading scholar on reconstruction of New Testament biblical sites, says that this video is about as close as it could probably get to what it, what it did look like. So I hope the video is clear enough. Take a, take a look at this video. I hope in your mind's eye that may help as we walk through this passage, I said that there are six acts of this one, uh, six scenes in this one act. The first is in verses 25 to 27. And the main thing we find there is what all the people in that temple area and in the city of Jerusalem who were packed in for the Feast of Tabernacles, what we learn in verse 25 to 27 is what the popular opinion was concerning Jesus kind of from the man on the street from Jerusalem. There were people from all over the place, but we're told in verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying. So we know that we're about to get kind of the man on the street, popular understanding opinion of the Lord Jesus. Before we do, let me just make sure we understand a little bit of the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. This was one of the three Jewish feasts in addition to Passover and Pentecost. Feast of Tabernacles would have been in the fall. We know because of where we are in John's gospel that we're in the fall before the Lord Jesus was crucified the next spring. We're about six months away from the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. At the next Passover, he would be crucified. This feast, Tabernacles, was not only in the fall, it was an annual feast that celebrated a particular remembrance of God's kindness in the Old Testament to Israel and that was especially during their sojournings their wanderings in the wilderness for those 40 years under Moses and especially that all those years in the middle of a desert God sustained his people he gave them bread and water he gave them manna 
every single day and he gave them water out of the rock and the Feast of Tabernacles especially celebrated that and it lasted for a week. People would come, they would live in booths or tabernacles and it would be a week-long celebration. Jesus shows up in the middle of the week. He sent his disciples at the beginning of chapter seven ahead of him and then he shows up alone in the middle of the week and the place is jam-packed. The broader context of the passage in the Gospel of John connects not only Jesus being at the Feast of Tabernacles, but Jesus actually being the fulfillment of what the feast represented. In the previous chapter, we hear Jesus say, you're about to celebrate manna, I'm the bread of life. You're gonna celebrate water, our chapter, I am the living water, come to me, everybody who's thirsty. So bread and water represent something very significant. That's why the feast celebrated these two things and it represents the obvious. Basic sustenance for life. More than you need anything else to live, you need bread and you need water. And so what this feast is remembering is God provided for the people's most basic need to sustain them. And then when John tells us the Lord Jesus is the bread and the water, we're to understand he is the most basic need of every human life. And nobody at this feast hardly understood that. To put it another way, the Holy Spirit is showing you right now that the portion you need is the Lord Jesus Christ. More than you need anyone or anything else, John is revealing that the Lord Jesus and him alone truly satisfies your most basic need, your hunger and your thirst. And I want to ask you in love and because God brought you here to hear it, do you belong to Jesus? That's the context of our passage, Feast of Tabernacles, and what it represented. But we find out in this passage, as I mentioned, that there's a popular view of Jesus according to the man on the street, they understand something about him based on the buzz of the religious leaders of their day, and that is, in particular, the plot to kill him. You can see that. Verses 25 and 26 say, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers don't know that this is the Christ, do they? John 7 is replete with that theme of Jesus being hunted We're told that not only is there stark irony, here's the man that they say they're trying to kill and he's standing up publicly teaching, but verse 26 says they don't even talk to him. Quote, they are saying nothing to him. The fact that Jesus was a hunted man I mentioned is replete in this chapter. If you let your eyes fall on verse one of chapter seven, we find that Jesus was unwilling to walk in Judea, that's where Jerusalem is, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. If you let your eyes fall on verse 19, you'll see that Jesus said from last week's sermon text, Moses gave you the law, yet none of you carries out the law, why do you seek to kill me? In verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon, who's seeking to kill you? They're, They're denying the obvious that they know. Verse 25, I just read for you, This is the man whom they are seeking to kill. And in verse 30, we're told that they send officers to try to seize him, but they weren't able to do it because his hour had not yet come. So it's readily apparent from this context that folks on the street in Jerusalem understood that there were people who wanted to kill Jesus, and Jesus knew that. Yet here, do you find this beautiful about our Savior? Do you have spiritual eyes to see 
the magnanimous restedness in his father's prerogative that our Lord lived with? Verse 26 has a beautiful word, publicly. They want to kill him. Everybody knows it, and so does he. And here comes Jesus to the temple that you just saw depicted, and publicly, verse 26, begins to make declarations about himself and about his gospel labors. That word publicly, used nine times by John, confidently, boldly, plainly, openly, publicly, is translated confidently in the New American Standard 14 times in the New Testament, boldly five times, plainly five times. It's the same word we get in Hebrews 4.16, which incidentally started today's service, and I didn't plan it that way, God did. It's translated confidence. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Now see Jesus confidently, publicly, boldly, unashamedly in the middle of that crowd that wants to kill him. It's the same word in Philippians 1.20 that Paul says, oh, I desire one thing that Christ would be exalted in my body and that with all boldness, the Lord Jesus would be exalted in my life, either by life or by death. And in Ephesians 6, where Paul says to the church at Ephesus, would you pray for me so that when I open my mouth, I would make the gospel known with boldness. That's the word. So in John 7, first thing I want us to see is Jesus shows up in the middle of this crowded feast. He and everybody knows that folks want to kill him, and he stands up and does the most counterintuitive thing that anybody under that circumstance would do. He stands up and says, here I am, all by himself. Verse 25, so some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying anything to him. The murder-breathing mobs are cowering down and wilting while Jesus is publicly, confidently, boldly, clearly, courageously teaching in the temple. The irony is thick. But we also start to see what Jesus is saying. Not only is he doing it boldly, but John wants to draw attention, number two in verses 28 and 29, to his message. And if you'll notice, verse 28 begins, I hope in your translation it puts it close to this, he cried out in the temple. He was teaching and John tells us what he was saying. You both know me and you know where I'm from and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. You see, the people who were conjecturing about Jesus in verse 27, hey, is this the Christ? Well, actually, we know where he's from and we won't really know where the Christ is from. That's nonsense. They knew that the Old Testament taught clearly that the Christ would be from Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, that he'd be from the line of David and Jesus was both in his earthly father, Joseph, and in his earthly mother, Mary, line, both Davidic. They knew that. They're ignoring the reality that they knew. But their presuppositions had been all jumbled up about Jesus because of some of the Old Testament prophecies, like he will suddenly appear in the temple. And maybe they thought, okay, it'll be like a bolt of lightning and poof, there'll be a Messiah in the temple. And they just pushed away what was so plain 
from God's revelation about the Savior. But beginning with the wrong presupposition, we won't know where the Messiah is from. We know where he's from. He's from Nazareth, some kind of like backwoods, little off the beaten path place. And because they had the wrong presupposition, they got to the wrong conclusion. They were wondering where he was born geographically in Palestine, but Jesus, when he cries out, he wants them to know where he's from essentially in his nature from eternity. Yes, he was from Bethlehem, Micah 5. Yes, his Davidic line, 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 110 and on and on we could go was Davidic. But Jesus here reframes the issue. The issue is not so much his earthly family tree or the geographic stomping ground from which he hailed and where he was reared, but rather his divine origin that he had always possessed. I take Jesus to be questioning their assertion in verse 28, and I think it's more of a rhetorical question. You know me and where I'm from? It's not an affirmation. It's a rhetorical question. You think you know me? Then he shifts to the all-important information about his ultimate identity and their ultimate destiny in the same verse. Can you hear this? Verse 28, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true whom you do not know. This is his cry. Knowing whose earthly family line Jesus belongs to is vitally important. Two of the four Gospels, Luke and Matthew, begin by giving us Jesus' human lineage to confirm that he is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah that God had promised in the pages of the Old Testament. But before any of that, even before there was an earthly family, in fact, before there was an earth, we must know that Jesus is the one who is from eternity, that he is God. I am from him. I'm not from Bethlehem, mainly or Nazareth primarily, I'm from the portals of eternity. I came out of the heart of God. I'm his monogenes, I'm his only begotten. He sent me, that's where I'm from. The first thing, the principal Christological doctrine, if you deny it, you're a heretic. The essential truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ is that he came from the unending portals of eternity past right from the heart of and sharing the same nature with God the Father. He came to earth willingly, voluntarily, subordinating himself to the Father's good pleasure to be crushed as the sinner's redeemer and to die in the stead of those like us who were hellbound and without hope, save Jesus intervening and interposing his precious blood. So the core application of verse 28 and 29 is do you believe Jesus' words? Have you come to know this Jesus by faith? The only way Jesus could give you eternal life is that he must first possess it. He can't export what he doesn't have. The reason John 3.16, and it is precious, the reason it's so precious, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life he can give that because he possesses that have you entrusted your soul to him entirely for your everlasting hope would you say that by faith you belong body soul and mind to another if not you will be among those of verse 27 who just conjecture 
about Jesus as if they're the enlightened ones, only to perish into a Christless eternity because they would not embrace him as Savior and Lord. Jesus said plainly in verse 28, you do not know him. But before we go to number three, which will be one of our special focuses in the text, I don't want to leave that word cry. Verse 28, Jesus cried out. If you're a Bible marker, it might be one of those worth underlining or noting. It's so stunning and powerful. We've already mentioned Jesus is a wanted man. He's at a public feast. He's in the middle of the temple that you saw rendered. And he's drawing attention to himself, not passively. He is crying out. The range of meaning of that word is to do something in a loud voice, to call out. It's the same word that the two blind men in Matthew 9 used as Jesus was passing by and they cried out, Matthew 9, 27, have mercy on us, son of David. It's the word that 39 times in the New American Standard is rendered either as cry or yell. It's 12 times to shout. It's two times to scream. It's the word in Galatians 4, 6 where we're told that because we have been made sons of God through the gospel work of Jesus, God has sent forth his spirit into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Every child of God knows that cry. So what John wants us to know in chapter 7 is that Jesus is publicly, openly, boldly proclaiming his identity And meanwhile, those who are threatening to kill him are not even talking to him. Verse 26. So the two things we're about to see, which I think is the main aim of John in this passage, is that God alone determines when Jesus dies. And Jesus simultaneously declares that his enemies, his enemies would soon, in a little while, soon perish forever. Number three, this is verse 30 and 31. So we got the public perception of Jesus in the opening part. We get his cry of his self-identity and affirmation in the second part. And number three, it's John explaining the moment. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verses 30 and 31, John commences to tell us why all this is happening. John writes in verse 30, so they were seeking to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? John's already told us that phrase, his hour had not yet come, earlier in this very same chapter from the lips of Jesus in verse 8. He tells his disciples, you go to the feast yourself, I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. He's clearly referencing the hour, the time of his death. He's not curious if it will happen. He knows that it will happen, but he also knows that it's not yet time for it to happen. And now here in verse 30, John gives us the answer for the ultimate reason why the sinister, murderous mob did not kill Jesus on this day. Let your eyes fall on it because his hour had not yet come. They wanted to seize him in verse 30 
And we're told why. It, it begins with the word so or therefore. It points to the statement in verse 28 and 29 where he asserted his divine identity and he is the sent son of the father. They wanted him because he was making himself equal with God. That's a quote from 518. They wanted him dead. They wanted him to suffer their wrath. But Jesus is asserting that it would be them who would soon suffer his wrath. That's where verses 34 and following take us. So we can clearly see from verse 8 that before Jesus goes to the feast, and we can see in verse 28 and 29, while he's crying out at the feast, standing in the middle of the temple, he knows that they can do nothing to him in this moment. I want to draw out an application I think is so relevant for our day. I agree with it, but I also think there can be unbiblical fears that replace God who should be in the center with fear which should not. The application is this. There are threats to the gospel in every generation, and there are threats to the gospel in our day. Two weeks ago, I alluded to many of those. There are threats to the gospel in every generation. Just in in my lifetime, I have seen as decades have rolled by that people have said the greatest threat to the gospel in our day are things like German liberalism, higher criticism. In the 1980s, it was the onslaught of easy believism, pray the prayer of Christianity. In the 90s, the avalanche of the prosperity gospel and the seeker movement. In the early 2000s, it was the emergent church. Now it's ethnocentrism and political ideologies. And every generation sees an old lie repackaged, there are no new lies, as the greatest threat to the gospel ever. But I want to give you guys some encouragement from this passage. If there was actually, if there was ever actually a true greatest threat to the true gospel, it would be killing Jesus prematurely. I trust you guys may know that if he did die in chapter seven, the gospel would not have been accomplished. You see, if Jesus died at age 12 when he went and wowed the teachers in the temple with his insight, he wouldn't have been an adequate redeemer. Not because he's deficient, but because he had not yet, his words, fulfilled all righteousness or his words accomplished all that the Father had given him to do. You see, we find the night before he dies, Jesus says, Judas, the son of perdition, has abandoned, betrayed me so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So if that didn't happen, the scripture wouldn't be fulfilled and hundreds of other prophecies that the Lord Jesus had to fulfill, which he says in John 5, he came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So if he dies in John 7, you wanna talk about a threat to the gospel? That's a threat to the gospel. He would not have fulfilled all righteousness and consequently he would not have been an adequate redeemer. He would not have accomplished all the work that the Father had given him to do and all the many Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And we can draw comfort from this fact. God saw to it that Jesus was unkillable because God is the most committed person in the universe to the accomplishment of, the preservation of, and the propagation of the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will not be snuffed out in any generation. The book of Acts ends in the Greek with the word unhindered. 
Now think about the book of Acts. People beheaded, apostles in prison, run out of cities, let down in baskets in a hole in the wall in the middle of the night, stadiums full of murderous mobs wanting to kill the apostle Paul. It seems like there's constant impediments to the gospel. And the book of Acts ends with the word unhindered, which is the Holy Spirit's little note to say to us all, you can't imprison the gospel. You can't stop the gospel. God and his saving purposes in the Lord Jesus Christ are going to march, march forward in every generation, in every continent, until kingdom come. The Lord Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come, and nothing is stopping God from accomplishing that. And I take great courage in that fact and the application of it from this passage as it's played out in the Lord Jesus our God is in the heavens and he does whatsoever he pleases. Psalm 135, 6. The Lord will accomplish all of his good pleasure, as Isaiah said. So what we see, I'm saying, in this passage is God sovereignly preserving the life of the Lord Jesus until the appointed time of the cross. We, therefore, can also rest assured at the same time that God is still sovereignly orchestrating the events, the peoples, and the plans of all the world and the people in it for the accomplishment of his gospel advancing purposes in the lives of his people through his church to the ends of the earth. John seems to just drop that little note casually, but it's a divine grenade. His hour had not yet come. I was at a funeral on Friday for a family member and the minister officiating at the funeral read a marginal handwritten note from the Bible of my family member. And the note said, beside the passage, quote, every person is indestructible until God is finished with them on earth. No matter what man may have plotted against Jesus, that's the point of verse 30. Jesus knew that he was indestructible until the appointed time that the father had arranged for his death. And until then, no man, no mob, no plan, no evil devised against him, no scheme of the devil could snuff out his life prematurely. Today, we need to see the Savior's resolute embrace of his father's plan and purpose and to be filled with the courage that flowed through the Lord Jesus as he takes up residence in his people who have trusted him by faith so that we too can live courageously in the midst of a evil and perverse generation. A.W. Pink said it well. They could no more arrest Christ than they could stop the sun from shining. God is over all. His purpose is always worked out. People cannot prevent it. The time for Jesus' death was not yet, and his enemies could not bring that time forward, Leon Morris wrote, no matter how they might try. With Jesus, every believer can sing, I trust in you, O Lord. My times are in your hand. So before we move to the next point, dear brothers and sisters, as was true in the life of Jesus, who accomplished our salvation in God's time, God's way, according to God's plan, 
in spite of all the evil intentions of those in Jesus' generation who, want to, who wanted to intrude upon God's gospel purposes, so also we are to rest assured that in our generation, no matter what oppositions may rise, God will preserve his people, purify his church, and propagate the true gospel to the ends of the earth. The question is not will he do it, but will we be part of it? Fourth, verse 32. When John lets us know that Jesus' hour had not yet come and Jesus had declared his identity and his gospel intentions in his loud cry, in verse 32 we see very briefly the reaction of the Pharisees and the chief priests. They hear that the crowds are starting to mutter and murmur things about Jesus based on what he's saying about himself. Earlier, we can deduce from verses 25 and following, maybe they're saying, he is not the Christ, is he? They don't believe he's the Christ, do they? It's those kinds of things that the crowd is starting to mutter and the chief priests and Pharisees are aware of it. So this is where they start getting official. Matt mentioned earlier that there was an arrest warrant with Jesus' name on it and that's made plain from verse 32. The chief priests and Pharisees didn't go to get Jesus. They sent officers to seize him. That's temple court officers. That's Roman officials. And to send them, they needed a formal charge, something that we might call a warrant. So from their vantage point, the officers didn't apprehend him immediately. We don't know all the reasons why. John doesn't tell us. Maybe they were looking for an opportune moment. Maybe they didn't want to incite a riot in the middle of this big festival. We don't know why they didn't try to apprehend him immediately, but we do know that they wanted to seize him. Verse 32, it's used twice in the passage. We also know why they did not do it, because God was overriding their sinister intentions for his ultimate gospel purposes. There would come an hour when the when the God of the universe would allow them to apprehend him, but not yet. Their intention to seize Jesus, don't lose me here, gives way to one of the most penetrating and damning statements Jesus ever spoke. His hour had not yet come, The Pharisees and chief priests send officers to seize him. Look what happens next. Verse 33 and 34 give us Jesus' damning declaration to these religious leaders. This is why I said a moment ago, they wanted Jesus to suffer their wrath, but Jesus asserted that they would soon suffer his Verse 33, therefore Jesus said, for a little while longer I'm with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am going, you cannot come. The NIV drops the word therefore at the beginning of verse 33, but it's really important. It connects this verse to the previous verse, meaning John means for us to understand a direct connection between the plot to arrest Jesus and Jesus' declarations about his death resurrection and ascension where I'm going you cannot come that's a early reference to his ascension back to the father's right hand after his resurrection from the dead for Jesus the issue is not if he will die but when he will die he knows that it will happen 
No one here is more aware of the fact that he will die than he is, but they're all mistaken about the time and the way. As we've seen in our Mark study, Jesus knows that his death is going to happen by crucifixion. He repeatedly tells his followers, I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me and they will crucify me. But he also knows that the Father's time is not yet. But when that time does arise, pardon me, but when that time does arrive, verse 33 is exposing that those who are seeking to, to destroy him through death are the ones who in fact will be destroyed forever. Eternal death. God's righteous wrath. It's not fun for me to preach on this, but I love you enough to tell you the truth. Ignoring reality will not make it go away. Verse 34 is a damning declaration from Jesus about the fate of these religious people. They're all at the Jewish festival. They all think they're right with God. And as far as I can read it, this passage gives us an indication that we can confidently say at least one of them is right with God and maybe none of the rest of them. The crowds are indicted just as much as the religious leaders are indicted. And that comes in verse 36. We don't even know where the disciples are at, though the passage earlier tells us that they're there somewhere. Are they listening to him? We know that Judas isn't one of the faithful. The damning declaration is that Jesus is speaking about the fate of a bunch of religious people. The day is coming, Jesus declares, when they will seek him and not find him, for he will be in a place that they, quote, cannot come. If you have your Bible open, just skip over to chapter 8 and look at verse 19 and following, especially verse 21. John 8, 19, so they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father if you knew me. You would know my father also, John 8, 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Does that sound familiar? Verse 21, then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. That's the parallel verse. Where I am going, you cannot come. Do you see Jesus elaborating on his teaching from John 7? Here in John 8, 21, so the Jews, 8, 22, were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. Maybe he's talking about suicide. Verse 23, and he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. 24, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe, ego ami, I am, you will die in your sins. That's why I'm saying this is one of the most damning paragraphs that Jesus ever uttered. After he gave his identity, I'm from the Father, he sent me, I know him, you don't know him, I'm going somewhere in a very little while that you cannot come. It means that the day of grace will soon pass them by. John MacArthur was meditating on this passage and he said this, hell is essentially Truths discovered too late. The two most dark, horrific words that can be put together in any language, too 
late. You see, Jesus' hour had not yet come, but it would soon come. Just read to chapter 19. The hour's coming. I told you this about six months after this moment when Jesus is standing in the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles. When he gets to Passover, six, six and a half months later, he'll be dead. The hour's coming. And if you could imagine in eternity past, the Lord Jesus knowing the Father's plan to send him as the Redeemer to an hour, the hour of the cross, all of eternity squeezed down into this finite moment of time where the infinite God pays an infinite price and a finite amount of time for infinite sinners so that we can be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God. Not to make us morally neutral, take our sin away, but to give us all God's righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ if we would trust him. And then through, if you will, the other side of the cross, God the Father is reaching his mighty hand down through the cross. And if 2 Corinthians 5.19 tells us something staggering about the cross, it tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us, but giving us the righteousness of Christ by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21, because Jesus took all our, our unrighteousness and was made sin for us. What I'm saying is, when the hour of Jesus comes, he is going to reconcile to God all who come to him by faith, believing that his death was in our stead for our sin, not his own, and that he rose victoriously and went to a place where all who so trust him will come. But verse 33 and 34 should sound an alarm in the heart of every man. I don't know if you can hear the sirens in your soul. A hundred years from now, there's going to be an entirely new set of humans on planet Earth, maybe with rare exception. We will have all passed into eternity by then. You only have a brief opportunity to believe on the Lord Jesus. That's what he's saying in the temple. I will be with you for only a little while longer. That statement is now being applied to you by the Holy Spirit today. The vapor of your life will soon be snuffed out and only what you have done with Christ will matter. Have you believed on him? Have you abhorred not only the bad you've done, but the best you've done? Have you repented from your prideful self-worship? Your root sin is you have made yourself God. You have done things your own way, and many times, many of us are so sophisticated in our sinfulness that we even use God as a support for it. Have you repented from making God's treasure, his son, his only begotten, an afterthought in your mind, being of little consequence in a little while? In a little while, all that will matter to you is the absolute sufficiency of the Lord Jesus to have been your Savior if you do not know him. That will be all that matters to you, I assure you. God sent his greatest treasure, the Lord Jesus, to earth so that those on earth could join God in treasuring the Lord Jesus with him forever. And our passage concludes by letting us know that most of the people who heard Jesus say this 
do not understand or believe this all-important message. Verses 35 and 36 pick up on one thing Jesus said in the temple. He's crying out, telling them about his identity. He's telling them where he came from. He's telling them where he's going back. But notice what the crowd picks up on in verse 36. What is this statement that he said? Now, this isn't just the religious elite, the leaders who are wanting to kill Jesus, probably representatives of the Sanhedrin. It's not just them. It is, verse 35, the Jews. It's the whole throng of people from the city and folks who have come from far and wide to celebrate this. They're the ones saying, what is this statement? Is he going to go out to the dispersion? Is he going to all those cities spread out in the Roman territory where he's going to teach either the Hellenistic people or maybe just the the Greeks proper? What, What is this statement? You will seek me and you will not find me for where I am you cannot come. Do you see that that's the one thing John wants us to pick up on? It's the one thing he repeats. The Gospel of John will later make perfectly clear what Jesus meant by this statement. It may have been a little bit cryptic. At this point, you will seek me and not find me. Where I am, you can't come. It may have been veiled in this moment, but it wouldn't be for long. We know if we continue to read the Gospel of John that Jesus was not speaking about his departure from Jerusalem, going back to Galilee or to the diaspora, the dispersion. But he was referencing his departure from earth, that he was going back by bodily ascension after his resurrection from the dead, after he had conquered sin, death, and Satan, after he put death to death, he was going to go home from whence he originally came. He was going back to what the writer of Hebrews called the joy set before him. Those portals of eternity where he had enjoyed God with God as God from forever. As John began his gospel with, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. When they start asking, what does he mean? You're not going to be able to find me because where I am, you cannot come. He's referring to that precious doctrine of the ascension. It's one that we've not probably drawn out enough benefit from in our own walk with the Lord or as a congregation. It's such a precious doctrine. R.C. Sproul said, without the ascension, both the cross and resurrection are meaningless. Ascension Ascension Thursday, 40 days after the cross this year, is going to be celebrated on Thursday, May the 13th, 10 days before Pentecost, May 23rd. We ought to always remember, Acts 1 tells us, that the Lord Jesus ascended bodily, he's gonna return bodily, which knows that we will forever be with him, raised in glory bodily. Unless you get this truth, unless you follow Jesus there, what John and Jesus wants us to know is we'll be damned forever. So I wanna ask you a question from verse 34 and from verse 36. More than you want anything else in the universe. Do you want to be with him where he is? Just a few chapters later in John 14, Jesus says, don't be troubled, followers. Yes, I'm going to leave. I'm going back to my father. Don't be troubled. I'm coming back. And when I do, I'm going to receive you to myself so that, here's a purpose statement, where I am, 
there you may be also. Do you want him? Jesus will say just a few verses after that. Do you want to know the way? Do you want to know how to go where I'm going to be? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's the message that he's proclaiming on the courts of that temple on this day in John chapter 7. Dear ones, neither the confused crowds nor the opposing mobs had any saving interest in Jesus. And we learn from this text that it is quite possible to be very religious and very wrong. The Pharisees and the chief priests and the officers wanted to do away from Jesus because it wasn't on their agenda to allow Jesus to have center stage in their life or anyone else's. They would prefer that Jesus be conveniently eliminated altogether. What about you? Do you want Jesus out here, maybe orbiting, occasionally showing up? Or do you want him right in the middle? Do you want to draw him in as close as can be drawn? And do you want to be placed by the Father in him? Are you delighted when Christ Jesus is given the place of highest honor in everything, in every moment? May we be found trusting in him, delighting in him, eagerly awaiting his return so that when he does return, we're not surprised. We're not the Second Thessalonians 1.10 people who are going to be destroyed or 112 people suffering his wrath away from the presence of the Lord. Rather, we're going to be those who marvel at him when he comes again to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Oh, dear ones, Jesus says, you will seek me and you won't find me because where I am, you cannot come that means that there's a limited window where he can be found. The old, the old guys would say, seek the Lord in finding times. And they were leaning on passages like this in Isaiah 55 where the Lord says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That's what Jesus is underlying. There's coming a day when the door will be closed and it will be everlastingly too late. Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles in the temple where the sacrifice that God accepted would be made on earth representing his sacrifice that would be made in the heavenlies. This whole event in John 7 was to celebrate the kindness of God to Israel who had sustained them with bread and water as I mentioned and the Spirit of God is telling you today Jesus is that bread. Jesus is that water. The very next verse, next week's sermon text Come to me, all who are thirsty. He is your most basic need, and he is your soul's true satisfaction. And you must rest your faith on the risen Jesus so that you can go and join him where he has gone. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for sovereignly ordaining, controlling, overriding, superintending all the events of the life of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you, by your invisible hand, but no doubt active agency, prevented crowds and murderous mobs and evil people and sinister religious regimes from killing Jesus early. We thank you that you preserved his life until he had fulfilled all righteousness and at your appointed time, 
He died as a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. We thank you that you accomplished salvation in our, as you say, justification in Romans 4 by raising him from the dead. And Lord, we pray that we would so put our trust in him that we begin to look like him, confidently, unwaveringly, trusting our great God and our Father's wise bestowment in every moment of life, having the life of Christ course through our veins, that we don't live in fear of this or that or people, but with our eyes firmly fixed on you, we fear the Lord and we walk in obedience to all of your commands. God, I do pray that those among us who do not have a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus would fly to him for mercy now. We pray this in Jesus' name.